What child is there who does not love to hear a good story? Is that right, kids? You guys all, assuming you're a normal child, love to hear a good story. Well, beyond the mere enjoyment of the child, studies reveal many ways in which children benefit when their parents both read stories to them and also tell them stories. When these stories are told in rich and interactive ways, studies say, kids have a larger expressive vocabulary, better narrative and memory skills, and a more astute understanding of emotions. Adolescents with a richer knowledge of family history, which normally comes through stories, have a stronger self-concept, lower anxiety, and fewer behavioral problems. Well, when I think of great storytellers, my father is one of the first people who pops into my mind. Dad seemed to have an innate ability to tell good stories. And when they do, the pitch in their voice changes, and the nostalgia starts to flow in, making the story rich and making it come alive. My dad often told stories he made up. And he almost always was able to convince us that they were true. But he also told us great stories about growing up next to a creek in upstate New York and working as a lifeguard at a Christian camp during high school and college. And perhaps the story he was most proud to tell was about his dad and five brothers who served in the Navy during World War II. All of them returned home, except Omer, who died at age 22 on December 23, 1944, during the intense fighting of the Battle of the Bulge. Well, my father was born two months later and was given his uncle's name. Is there anything more attractive and compelling as a good story? Story informs, it involves it motivates, it authenticates and mirrors existence. And Jesus, Jesus was the master creator of story. And I think I agree with one who said that at no point is the vitality, relevance, and usefulness of the teaching of Jesus so clear as in his parables. Now, a parable is not merely a story. In its broadest sense, it refers to an expanded analogy. Parables are much more than illustrations, and they're primarily directed at life here on this earth. They are fictitious sayings picturing truth. Or in the words of a modern poet, parables are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Imaginary gardens with real toads hopping around. Now the ultimate aim of parables is to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and to move to action. I've heard it said that Jesus' parables are like a hand grenade that he pulls the pin out of, sets it on the table, and waits to see what you're going to do with it. 
I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This chapter contains seven parables of Jesus. We're not going to look at all of them. But, but to begin with, draw your attention to verses 34 and 35. So kind of in the middle of this collection of parables, Matthew says in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. So, so Jesus spoke in parables a lot. And all the parables in this particular chapter are about the kingdom of heaven, which is it's synonymous with the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God being the same thing. This kingdom is God's redemptive or saving rule over his people, exercised by the king, Jesus Christ. This kingdom began at the coming of Christ, but it's not yet fully complete. Well, in the first parable of this chapter, verses 1 through 23, we see the parable of the sower. And Jesus taught in that parable that there would be a mixed response to the message of the kingdom, as illustrated in the four different soils. In the parable we'll consider this morning, it's as if Jesus zooms in on the good soil, teaching that the kingdom itself will be mixed. So let's consider this parable together this morning. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 24. The parable of the weeds. He put together another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So Galilee was well known for wheat. And it was the staple food product of the Roman Empire. The enemy here is probably a farmer who at times would sneak in at night and sow dangerous weeds in a rival's field. In fact, this occurred with such frequency that the, the Romans even had a law prohibiting such activity. The, the weed was called a darnel, which looked very much like wheat. Early on, especially, when it first came up, it really looked identical to wheat. But as it grew, the distinctions became clear. And it could carry a poisonous fungus. And if this darnel was harvested and ground together with the wheat, it would cause the wheat to spoil. 
So as the wheat and the weeds matured, the, the servants saw the difference and they recognized, hey, there's weeds out here. And they asked the master, didn't you plant good seeds? We're seeing some weeds and we know that they would not have come from your good seeds. The master says it must have been the work of an enemy and the servants were ready to pull up all the weeds and take care of the problem right then and there. But the master said, no, don't do that because in the process you'll pull up the wheat, the, the roots of the darnel and the wheat would grow together. So he said, don't pull the weeds, you'll hurt the wheat in the process. Let them grow together and at the harvest, the reapers will separate the wheat and the weeds, burn the weeds and store the wheat in my barn. As this chapter unfolds, Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. And he makes there the point that although God's kingdom is really small, even though it doesn't look like much now, it's going to grow like a seed. It's going to grow like leaven and become so much more. So he's saying, don't underestimate the kingdom. Doesn't look like much now, but it's growing. Then in verse 36, Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So, so we gather then from this, that Jesus' own disciples did not understand what he was saying about the wheat and the weeds any better than the crowds there who would have heard him. But they wanted to know. The disciples wanted to know what this story means, what this parable meant. They genuinely desired an explanation. So it's worth considering the question then, why didn't Jesus give the explanation sooner? He told this parable to the crowds. Why didn't he give everybody the explanation? We see the answer in verses 10 through 16 of this chapter. Just turn back to verse 10. We read that the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who's not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophet of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts. And in turn, I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for you see, in your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the mysteries of the kingdom are revealed to the disciples, but they're withheld 
from the spiritually unresponsive. Jesus used parables to either harden a person's heart or to elicit a positive response. And since the disciples, his disciples, had eyes to see and hear, ears to hear, he proceeds to share with them the explanation, beginning at verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So in his explanation, we see Jesus shared that the sower of good seeds is the Son of Man. And this Son of Man is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus called himself the Son of Man, over 80 times, indicating the true meaning of his identity and his ministry. Now, an ordinary male human being is literally a Son of Man. But Jesus is the Son of Man, suggesting the greatest and most noblest Son of all time. This is a messianic title that refers back to the mysterious human divine figure in Daniel's vision, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. One who would be given rule over all the nations of the earth forever. This is what Jesus is drawing from as he calls himself the Son of Man. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there come one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, that's me. This is who I am. And as the master of the field, Jesus both sows this, the good seed and he harvests and directs the harvest. And in both of these roles, there's an implicit claim to deity. We're not going to take the time to look at the text, but all throughout the Old Testament, there are places, particularly in the prophets, where God, God is referred to both as the sower and the director of the harvest. So as announcing himself as the sower and the harvester, Jesus 
is saying, I'm the Son of Man, and I am God. The field is the world, not the church, as many have interpreted this, this part of the parable. We see here, then, that Jesus is the owner of the world and everything in it. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The good seed or the wheat are the children of the kingdom. Those who live under the rule of God in their lives. The weeds are the children of the evil one who, just like their devil, place themselves on the throne of their life. The enemy who sowed the bad seeds is the devil. And think of this for a minute. The field is not even his. Yet the devil is trying to spoil the wheat harvest that belongs to the sovereign Lord. He's unable to build something for himself. And therefore, he's set on maliciously destroying what Jesus is doing. Which explains why so many evil things have marred the history of the Christian church. Anywhere the gospel is spreading, anywhere the church is growing, is always going to be in the devil's crosshairs. The harvest represents the end of the age, which was a common concept describing the destruction of evil and the beginning of eternity. The curtain of history as rendered in the message. This is clearly a reference to the final judgment. We see the very same thing happening in the parable of the net, which comes in verses 47 through 50, where there's a separation of the evil and the righteous in judgment. Jesus ends his explanation with a charge to listen carefully trying to show the importance of his teaching. It's as if he's saying here, those who ignore these truths do so at their own peril. Now, there's so much in this parable that is worthy of deeper consideration. But I'd like for us to consider three points as we seek to apply the message of this parable to our lives. The first point is, be at peace in a world of sin. This parable states that the righteous and the wicked coexist in the world, even when the kingdom is present. Now, this was really hard for the Jews in the first century to understand. I mean, they would have read the Old Testament prophets, they, they would have known of John the Baptist's message that had just been given about the coming Messiah when he said, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire, Luke three seventeen. So that's what they were expecting. Jesus would come, purge Israel, and create a pure community. He was going to make everything right. But it wasn't happening. Many in Israel were rejecting his message. 
the Romans were still there, judgment wasn't happening. So, so the Jews then were no doubt wondering, how can this be the kingdom if evil is still present? Jesus states in this parable that the presence of evil does not mean that the kingdom isn't here. In fact, there will be weeds mixed in with the wheat until the very end. And we see it today, don't we? As our present situation is one of mutual coexistence between the children of the kingdom and the children of the evil one. The new age has dawned in the midst of the old, but the old is still not removed. Not yet. So then we should neither be unaware nor surprised that evil is active at the same time as God's reign. Where there is wheat, there will be weeds. And although God's common grace abounds, which we praise him for, we shouldn't expect weeds to believe or act like wheat. If we truly grasp what Jesus is teaching here, I believe we can be at rest in the presence of weeds. We can be at rest in a world of sin. Now, now this does not mean that we're at rest with sin, thinking that it's somehow okay. Nor should we ever become callous or hardened to the groaning of all creation because of sin. Its presence and devastating effects should always grieve us. But we can be at rest with the reality of sin and evil in our world. Because we know that although the devil is active, our king owns the field and is totally sovereign over everything that happens in it. And I think being at rest with the world of sin will help to keep us from two pitfalls. Two pitfalls that we probably all sense and we probably all wrestle with to one degree or another. The first is it will keep us from the pitfall of false expectation. Just like the disciples in Jesus' day to one degree or another, we want things to be perfect now. And that's really a good desire because our world is not the way it's supposed to be. Weeds were not originally in the field. And they're not going to be there in the end. But in this good desire for things to be perfect now, there's, there's a danger of expecting that somehow they can be. And so, fueled by this expectation, Christians may become activists for cultural reform in one way or another, trusting in a good cause as a form of weed control. Or we can turn to politics with some level of expectation that if this man or woman gets elected or if this legislation will pass, there will be less weeds and our field will be so much better. But Jesus teaches us that evil will coexist with righteousness until the very end. Now, there certainly are good causes that we as representatives of God's kingdom ought to care about. 
and we ought to be involved in. And there is a right way for Christians to be involved in politics. Praise God for those who are faithfully serving in that role. And we ought to pray both for governing officials and for legislation that are in line with God's truth. And we should vote in every single election. But if we understand what Jesus is teaching here, we know that we will not eradicate the world of all injustices. And we won't even expect America to ever become a Christian nation. The primary job of the church is not the purification of the world. It's the purification of the church and the evangelization of the world. Purification of the world for the church is both a distraction and an impossibility. Now, I know that trying to navigate this can be really tricky. It's one of the many teachings of the Bible that leaves us with some tension. I certainly do not have it all figured out. But, but this tension is okay. And let's help one another and continue to work together in understanding how to be rightly engaged and involved in our world without false expectations. So being at rest with sin in our world will help keep us from false expectation. And second, it will help to keep us from the pitfall of isolation. The, the other side, if you will, of, of, the, of the challenges. Most Christians today, at least I don't know many, that are, are, they're not running off to monasteries or forming cloisters or looking to become Amish. But, but we can very easily think that if only I can somehow remove myself from the presence of evil and sin, everything's going to be so much better. Well, as much as we like to dream, there are no ideal spots in the world. Wherever Christ sows his people, Satan sows his weeds. So rather than thinking we can somehow create a field without weeds or just avoid them altogether, we must continue to learn from Christ what it looks like to be in the world, but not of it. And we must continue to think hard about how we can let our light shine as Jesus commanded, how we can build meaningful relationships with non-Christians, and then how we can gracefully and truthfully share the gospel of the kingdom with them. As Augustine said, those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. And God uses you and me, not as we sit in isolation, but as we rightly engage with unbelievers to proclaim the saving message of the gospel. So we must be at peace in a world of sin. Second, we must rejoice in God's mercy and patience. Rejoice in God's mercy and patience. Do you identify at all with the servants who wanted to pull the weeds out right away? I, I identify with those guys a lot. I can relate to all the sons and daughters of the kingdom who, like the Jews in Jesus' day, are itching for justice 
and itching for resolution now with all those who are longing for falsehood to be exposed now. All those who are feeling deeply that wrongs must be made right now. What is God waiting for? Why does the Son of Man allow the weeds to keep growing in his field? Why is he waiting to remove them? It's because of his mercy. The fact that God allows the weeds to grow with the wheat and the fact that the harvest has not come yet is his mercy to all those who do not belong to Christ. Every day that he holds off his judgment is another day of salvation. As Mitchell read earlier, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is why there's a delay in the perfect of justice of God. It's so sinners like you and me have time to repent. You see, God is far more patient with sinners than you and I. He is slow in judging the wicked because he wants them to turn to him. Aren't you glad he waited for you? The day is coming when real distinctions that are obscured now will become clear for all to see. And we must be patient for vindication. The, the vindication we want so bad now. We must be patient for that. Trusting Jesus for the final word that he will do what is just and right in his perfect time. And as we wait, we should follow the example of our master and show mercy and patience to the weeds whose roots are tangled up with ours. Be at peace in a world of sin. Rejoice in God's mercy and patience. And third, we must anticipate the harvest. When the king, kingdom came in Jesus, it came with grace, not judgment. But judgment will come with Jesus later. Although the time for judgment hasn't come yet, it most certainly will. It's very easy. It is for me, and I think for all of us, as we day in and day out just live life, it is really easy to dismiss this from our minds. It's hard for us to grasp and understand that judgment is actually going to happen. I mean, we regularly rub shoulders with Christians and non-Christians, and sometimes there really doesn't seem to be that much of a difference between them. And in fact, it even appears at times as if life is better for the weeds, as the psalmist described about in Psalm 73. But just because you can't see a difference in God's treatment of Christians and non-Christians 
now does not mean that different treatment isn't coming. Oh, it most certainly is. Don't let the fact that God's judgment hasn't happened yet be proof to you that it's not going to happen at all. The harvest is coming when weeds will be separated from the wheat. For the weeds, the children of the evil one, those outside of God's kingdom, this judgment will be horrible. Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth as they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Weeping, we know, indicates great sorrow. In this gnashing or grinding of teeth, most likely refers to terrible pain in light of the image of the fiery furnace. Perhaps you guys have seen old Civil War documentaries or um, war shows from that era. And they, you know, the, the, the surgeon with the unit would do the surgery in a tent. They did not have anesthesia. And so oftentimes surgery would happen right then and there. And, and I remember scenes at least where there would be something they would give the soldier to bite on, to, to bite down on as a way to try to help minimize his pain. Well, this will be far worse because the pain will never end. In biblical terms, hell is not primarily a place. Rather, it is the conscious state of total separation from God and complete absence of all of his goodness and blessings. And that is what makes hell indescribably horrible. As Rebecca McLaughlin describes well in her book, Confronting Christianity, if Jesus is the bread of life, then the loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then the loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. But for the wheat, the children of the kingdom, this judgment will be very different. Rather than suffering and sorrow, suffering sorrow and pain, Jesus says that they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Matthew wrote that when Jesus was transfigured, his face shone like the sun which means that the children of the kingdom will share in the glory of the king for all eternity. We will literally shine with the glory of the king. In heaven, the sons of the kingdom will experience the full blessings of God's presence in relationship with him and his people. And so in the words of J.C. Ryle, let him see that there is happiness and safety prepared for him in the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God will proclaim no terror for him. 
They will summon him to join what he has longed, desired to see. A perfect church and a perfect communion of saints. How beautiful will the whole body of believers appear when finally separated from the wicked? How fine will the wheat look in the barn of God when the weeds are at length taken away? How brightly will grace shine when no longer dimmed by incessant contact with the worldly and unconverted? It has been said of parables that the sting is in the tail. And that is certainly true in this one. We see that the kingdom of God cuts. It divides between those in the kingdom and those outside of it. There's no middle ground. And I know this sounds exclusive, polarizing and divisive. But that's because it is. This is what Jesus taught. The dividing line is how you've responded to the king. For it is only through him that you can have entrance into the kingdom and shine like the sun for all eternity. If you're here this morning and the reality of this future judgment troubles you, you must know that you do not have to face God's wrath and the horror of this judgment. The horror of the fiery furnace does not have to be your eternal destiny. You were born a weed with an evil and sinful heart. We all were. And because of that, God's wrath rests upon you and you deserve eternal torment. This judgment for all mankind is perfectly just. It's deserved. But the King, Jesus Christ, received the full outpouring of God's wrath for sin. The judgment of God was poured out on Christ as he died on the cross in the place of sinners, enduring incomprehensible sorrow and pain so that we would not have to experience any sorrow and pain at this coming judgment. Scripture teaches that if you will but repent of your sin and believe Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God will transform you from a weed to wheat. And through his grace alone, you will become a child of the kingdom. And you'll emerge from this judgment with great joy rather than great pain. And in providing you the opportunity to repent and believe, God is showing you mercy. He is showing you mercy. God is waiting for you. What are you waiting for? You're not promised another day. And the harvest is coming. So I encourage you with everything in me, repent of your sin and place your trust in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. If you have any questions about this judgment or the good news of rescue from this judgment, 
please let us know. We would love to talk with you afterwards and help you see more clearly how you can shine like the sun with Christ rather than face eternal torment in the lake of fire. In Christian, we ought to consider this. It, it really struck me this week. This reality ought to stir our hearts for those outside the kingdom. The reality of the coming harvest ought to fuel our evangelism. And remember that when we proclaim the gospel, we're not making a sales pitch. We're declaring what is true. And I know that the idea of God's judgment seems alien to our world. It's about as far from popular as you can get. It's seen as a psychologically damaging relic from a bygone era, as McLaughlin puts it. But it's true. It's true. And this reality should motivate us to proclaim the good news of God's rescue, both with compassion as well as the sense of urgency. We have seen in this profound parable of Jesus that even though there is evil and sin all around us, the kingdom of heaven is real and it's here. Jesus came to earth in grace and he continues to show mercy and patience. But the day is coming when there won't be any more weeds. Sin and evil will be punished with perfect justice and the wheat will share in eternal glory with the king. So as we wait for that day, may we be at rest with the presence of sin and evil, not isolating ourselves from it and not expecting we can make it go away. May we rejoice in God's mercy and patience. And may we anticipate with hope the day when our faces will shine like the sun as we continue to trust our Master who defeated death on the cross and one day will eliminate it forever. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for, for these words of Christ and thank you for this parable and the truth you revealed to us through it. And Jesus Christ, our King, we praise you as the master of the field. The world is yours and you own everything in it. Help us. Help us to trust your wise and good purposes in all that happens the evil, the pain, the sin. Lord, help us to trust your goodness and your love. And we praise you, Christ, for your mercy and your patience. We don't have it. We do not have it like you do, Father. And you're so merciful and patient. May it mark us more and more. Father, grow us in our mercy towards the lost and patience in our interactions with them. 
Help us, Lord, to know how to rightly engage with the lost in our world. Lord, we need wisdom. We need wisdom to know where we ought to be involved and engaged and where we shouldn't. We need wisdom in all of this, Lord, and we pray that you'd keep us from the pitfalls of thinking we can somehow remove evil and also thinking that things are better by disengaging and being isolated. Father, help us to anticipate the harvest with hope. Lord, give us a sense of urgency as we share the good news of the gospel. And for all those here this morning, Lord, who are not your children, Lord, we pray that you would give them eyes to see, give them ears to hear. Lord, help them to desire relationship with you and presence with you more than anything this world has to offer. We pray, Lord, you do this work for your glory. In Christ we ask. Amen.